Welcome to Joint Heirs in Granada Hills. This is our Bible study podcast in partnership with the Joint Heirs Fellowship Group at Grace Community Church. All right, well, we're going to turn to um, Philippians. We're in our study in Philippians, and we're just working our way through the book, and what a wonderful book it's been. Um, It's just been... Ben brought up the point last week that when you look around at the world, it's very easy to get discouraged and to just wonder, you know, what the Lord is doing. Okay, yeah, I think it's underneath there. Just wonder, you know, what's the Lord doing through all this? And it's easy, probably, even for believers, just to look and and kind of just to have your head just sag a little bit, to hang your head, but... When we look at Philippians, we see that that's not how the Apostle Paul would react to what's going on around. That's not how mature believers should respond. And Paul challenges us through the book of Philippians to look at life and circumstances totally differently than how the world does, and even maybe than how we're tempted to. Paul can see through the circumstances he was in, in prison, being maligned by others, not knowing where it was going to end up. We'll see tonight that he wasn't sure if he was even going to live or die. And he could look at that, and instead of seeing all the possibilities of of, uh, dire circumstances, instead of seeing all the potentially harmful things, all the discouraging things, Paul, he wasn't a Pollyanna, he didn't wear rose-colored glasses, he knew his Savior. And because of that, he could have joy. And so a book written from prison is not a, a letter of complaint and pity and feeling sorry for himself and asking others to feel sorry for him. It's instead, it's a book of joy. It's a letter of joy and encouragement and unity and exhortation to unity and joy. So it's so refreshing every time we can come to Philippians and we see that it's not, it's a, you know, I would tend to hesitantly call it a positive outlook. You know, but I, I'm hesitant because that has such baggage when you say it that way. That's so worldly, kind of self-help. Paul had a positive outlook. I wouldn't say it that way, really. I would say that, like I said, Paul knew his Savior. He knew his God. And because of that, he could have joy. What the world would see is, oh, he was such a positive guy. If they would see Paul, oh, he's so positive. You can always see the cup is half full. Maybe there's truth to that. But um, it's so deeply rooted in who he knew God to be that you just could not separate his joy and his quote-unquote positivity from his relationship with Christ. So we're going to look at verses 19, kind of 18 and a half through 26. Uh, but before we do, just let's talk about where we've been in Philippians, where we've been, then we're going to jump into our passage. But for context, uh, like I said, it's a book of joy. I would say joy and unity. Most of the most commentators call Philippians the letter of joy. I, I think there's so much about unity here that I would kind of add that to it, joy and unity. And you see that from the beginning, joy. Paul, as Ben pointed out last week or two weeks ago, um, you see joy scattered throughout, all throughout the the book. If you underline, I've underlined the word joy or rejoice, and you see it just, it's just kind of speckles through the whole letter. So Paul, at the beginning, he has joy, and his joy is in praying for the Philippians, verse 4. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. He has joy in praying for them. He's thankful for their participation in the gospel. He's hopeful in their spiritual growth. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, both in the imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are partakers of grace with me. He's then in verse 9, he's prayerful for their increased love. He prays that their love would increase. We looked at that. Prays that their love would increase more and more abound more and more in real knowledge, all discernment, for the purpose that they may approve things that are excellent. Remember we talked about that, that you approve not just what's good, but you you approve what's excellent. You run towards what's best and what's excellent. So he's prayerful 
for their increased love, and he has joy in praying for them. Then he finds joy in the proclamation of Christ. Ben took us through last week, verses 12 through 18, and he showed us how Paul could have joy in the fact that Christ was being proclaimed. That brought Paul great joy. He rejoiced in it. We see that in verse um, 18. He says, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I'm going to hit these lights a little higher. So he's rejoicing in the fact that Christ is proclaimed. You look at his circumstances, which he outlines here in verses 12 through 18, and there's not a lot of reason for joy if you just look at it objectively. He's in prison. Um, You have people who are maligning him. So some, to be sure, he said, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. Uh, He says later on, They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Not only is Paul in prison, but he has people who are attacking him, wanting to add on to his distress. The the word is pressure against him. You have these, these detractors who are maligning Paul. So it's a difficult situation, but Paul finds joy, not in the circumstances because they're easy, not in because he, he sees a light at the end of the tunnel, like maybe he'll get released or maybe he'll be vindicated in court. We, he doesn't know. He's not even sure if he's going to live or if he's going to die. But his joy is rooted in the fact that Christ was proclaimed. So joy in prayer, praying for the Philippians, joy in proclamation of Christ. And then tonight we're going to look at two other reasons for Paul's joy. Joy in the exaltation of Christ and joy in the manifestation of Christ. So, finding joy when our circumstances are are difficult. How can we do it? Well, again, looking back to Ben's lesson, being humble allows you to find joy when Christ is proclaimed. Trusting God's sovereignty allows you to find joy when Christ is proclaimed. Looking outward instead of inward Can we say the same thing about ourselves? As you look out at the world, at your circumstances, there have been difficult trials that many of you have faced and are facing on a daily basis. Can you elevate your gaze above the circumstances to see the God who is behind the circumstances or above the circumstances? It's hard for us to do sometimes. I I like the illustration that... If you are in front of a mountain, you can totally obscure the view of the mountain just by putting your hand right there. But if you can look through your hand, you can see there's a massive mountain there. And sometimes what we do is we look at our circumstances and we, it's like the hand that's covering over God that's the mountain back there. You don't see God who's standing above and reigning over the trials. You look just at the, the near-sighted Here's what my trial is today, and this is causing me pain or difficulty. And we're all tempted to do that, but Paul teaches us that we look beyond and above that to see God in the trials. And it affects everything. It affects our prayers. If we see that God can be working through the trials, it affects our prayers. It affects how we come to God. If it would be more beneficial for the proclamation of Christ, Lord, then let whatever you want take place. If it would be more beneficial for the proclamation of the gospel, for the, for the spread of the gospel, then X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. Then let me be shamed publicly in front of others. Let me be humbled if it will be beneficial for the proclamation of the gospel. Let me even die if it would be beneficial for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way that we can be praying when we can see God working through our circumstances. We can pray that whether I live or die, Lord, let you be exalted in my body. This is what Paul prays. So Paul found joy in praying for them and proclamation of Christ. And let's look at verses, uh, like I said, 18 and a half through 26 to see the joy and exaltation and manifestation of Christ. So, who wants to read verses 18 there where it starts with yes and I will rejoice all the way through 26? Who wants to read that for us? 
Jeffrey. So I'm reading where? 18 to uh, verse 18, where it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, all the way through to 26. Okay. The end. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and, and the joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Good. Thanks, Jeffrey. So Paul's joy, again, it starts off, the first thing we hear even in this is, I will rejoice. Again, Paul reminding them that he's going to be rejoicing. He's said, I rejoiced, I, I rejoice currently, Christ is being proclaimed, and I will rejoice in the future. I, I will be rejoicing. This is something that, not just right now, but I'm, I'm going to rejoice. I will future rejoice and he tells us why. Let's look at this. We're going to break down a little bit of the grammar. It's a, a, a little bit of a difficult um, couple verses here that we're going to try and work our way through. Bear with me as we look a little bit through grammar and try and slug our way through to understand. We really want to understand. When you read it, probably the first time, that a clear understanding of exactly what he's saying may not be there. It takes, at least it took me a while to really go through it. So let's, let's go through it, and then we'll kind of jump into... Um, the implications of what the meaning is here. But first thing we want to do when we read our Bible is we want to understand what does he mean? What, what's the meaning here? There's one meaning. We have to grasp it so that we can then draw the implications of what that meaning is. So let's look at it. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we have to resolve here is he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So two things is, what is this and what is deliverance? So if something is going to turn out for his deliverance, we want to know what is that. And we have to look up a little bit in the, in the context. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance. What is this? This, I believe, is everything that comes before when he starts talking about his circumstances. So in verse 12, he says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And here he's saying, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Everything that he says about his circumstances, I believe, are what will turn out for his deliverance. It's not just the positive, and it's not just the negative. I believe you take all of it. It's verse 12, like I said, my circumstances. Verse 14, he says, brethren, have more courage Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, brethren have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Verse 15, some of them are unrighteous, so the preaching of the unrighteous. Verse 16, the preaching of the righteous and the, the pure motivated ones. The overall proclamation of Christ, all these things will turn out for his deliverance. All this is going to, in, a, in the words of Romans 8.28, work together for good. All of this, he says, I'm confident they're going to turn out for my deliverance. They're going to work together for my good. Yes, there's trials. Yes, there's things that are uncertainties. Yes, there's people coming against me. But Paul was confident that they would work together for good. They would turn out for his deliverance. They would not work against him ultimately. Through the aid of prayers, he says, they'll turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. 
through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, so, so through the prayers of the saints who are interceding for him, through the provision that the Spirit provides to him, the strength, the wisdom, the words, the boldness, the courage, all that's provided through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, all these things are going to work together for his deliverance through the prayers and the provision. So this that's working or turning out for his deliverance is everything he's described here. So what's the deliverance then? What is it ultimately going to look like for him? Deliverance here, the word uh, is the same word for salvation. So he's saying this is going to turn out for my salvation. And there's a couple of views on it. One would be what he's talking about, a salvation in the, in the soteriological sense, that he's going to be saved from sin, and he will be with Christ forever. He'll, he'll be saved, and he'll be able to enjoy being glorified with Christ. So that's an eternal perspective. That he's saying this will turn out for my salvation, eternal salvation. I'll be with Christ. There's also a perspective that some take that says he's talking about physical deliverance. So well-being... Physically, he's going to be unharmed. Physically, he's going to, uh, with the court case that he has pending, that there's going to be vindication. So some say the deliverance he's talking about is physical well-being, deliverance, uh, vindication from court. He could be talking about either one. What is pretty clear, I think, is that whatever it is, it's temporary. All these things that are happening to him, are they're temporary, and they ultimately, like I said, will work together for his good. His deliverance means that he's going to be saved from these things. So they're not going to be able to ultimately thwart God's plan for Paul. So he's saying they're temporary, and they will not overcome God. And we can really, we can say that about all of our circumstances, right? Again, looking in the context of Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So really, any circumstance, you can say the same thing. It's going to turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, like we read, I don't know if it's going to be life or death. Christ will be exalted, whether it's in life or whether it's in death. All of us can say that our circumstances will ultimately turn out for our deliverance. God will use those to deliver us from whatever it is that is against us because if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Romans 8 is just, in my mind, Romans 8 is almost like the backdrop here of what Paul's saying. That if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, then... All of our circumstances are going to turn out for our deliverance. We're going to be saved through them. They can be physical. They can be spiritual attacks. They can be even death itself. Our body may be decaying. But ultimately, God will cause them to turn out for our deliverance. We will be rescued from them. So Paul takes joy. Or rather, Paul is, is able to see the truth that, that stands, he sees the mountain behind the hand. He sees that God is bigger and more powerful and that he ultimately reigns over the circumstances. And so he can say with confidence, like he says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, there will be deliverance. And he goes on that he has an earnest expectation and hope that he will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. So he says, I know I will be delivered. I am sure that I will not be put to shame. And I take joy that Christ will be exalted. I'm not sure how I will be delivered. I, I might die, I might live, but in either case, I can be confident that Christ will be exalted. This is a steady, firm, grounded, and rooted faith in God. In Christ. This is Paul knowing his Savior and knowing the power that God has to deliver him. So Paul is confident that all these things are happening that ultimately end in his deliverance without shame and with Christ being exalted. It reminds me also of James 1-2, which we know very well, right? Consider pure joy when what? When you encounter various trials. Consider it pure joy. Why? Not because trials are 
joyful in and of themselves, not because we should be looking to inflict pain on ourselves, but consider that consider it joy because knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result. This is, again, this has to be, Paul didn't write that, it was James, but this has to be the same mentality that's the backdrop of Paul's writing. Consider it pure joy because you know that these trials are producing endurance. The testing of your faith is producing something greater than what you have right now. It's producing more endurance than you currently have right now. Have you ever thought about that? You have a certain amount of endurance right now. If you're a sprinter, uh, uh, a marathon runner, you have a certain amount of endurance. But as you train, you increase your endurance. And so what God is doing through these trials is he's training us. He's increasing our endurance. You have this much right now. You have a 5 out of 10. Well, trials are going to give you a 6 out of 10. And another trial is going to give you a 7 out of 10. And trials are constantly refining, purifying, training, helping us. They're causing us to grow in our endurance. And so that's what Paul is seeing here. Trials, they're turning out for his deliverance. They're growing him. Turn over to Romans 5. This is something Paul did write. We know it's all the Holy Spirit, so it's all the same author. But the same human author, Romans chapter 5, similar idea. Chapter 5, verse 3, if you look at that. Actually, I'll start with verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here we see that trials and tribulation not just produce endurance, they don't just increase our endurance, they increase our perseverance, very similar. But there's even another thing we see. Perseverance then gives us what? What's it say there? Proven character. So endurance, perseverance, proven character. And then someone said, what's the next thing that it produces? Hope. Endurance, perseverance, proven character, hope. Would you want those things? If someone were to say, hey, Julie, do you want more endurance? Do you want more perseverance? Do you want more proven character? Do you want more hope? You'd say, of course. Okay, then God might bring you trials. <laughs> Whoa, that's a little different. Right? If you come to someone and say, or if God were to come to us and say, do you want trials in your life? We'd say, no, Lord. <laughs> no, Lord, please. And that's not wrong. Christ even prayed, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me. So it's not wrong to not want trials, but understand that in your trials and your difficulties, endurance, perseverance, proven character, hope. So it's not hard to see why Paul says we exult in our tribulations. Paul's a model. He's exulting in his tribulations. He knows, though, that they're going to turn out for his deliverance. He's confident. He knows that this will not ultimately thwart God's plan. What will come about through this? What is going to happen in Paul's situation? Verse 20, if we go on in our where we're looking at here, verse 20, back in Philippians 1. So he says, It'll turn out for my deliverance, through your prayers, the prayers of the saints, provision of the Holy Spirit, what God, what, uh, the Spirit of, of, of God provides to Paul, according to my earnest expectation and hope, and here's what, he's, here's what his hope is, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted. So the end goal of this is that Christ will be exalted. 
This is what he's rejoicing about. I will be delivered, but, but Christ will be exalted in my body. It may happen through life, maybe through death, but Christ will be exalted. So Paul is, is rejoicing because he knows he's going to be delivered. He's going to be aided by prayer, by the Holy Spirit. He's going to be not put to shame. He won't be shamed. He will, he will be exalting Christ in his body. This is what brings Paul joy, great joy. And again, I would ask you, does that bring you joy? Does it bring you joy to think about the fact that Christ can be exalted in me? Maybe before we, we even go into that, let's talk about what does it mean? What does it mean that Christ is exalted in you? Well, exalted here, it's not a word we really use in normal conversation, right? And even we can tend to even get it mixed up with the word we just saw in Romans 5, exalting. But exalted means, think of it as magnified. And, and I think even in the ESV, or in the LSB, the New Translation, it's magnified. Or maybe that's ESV. Honored. Um, it means to make or declare great, to raise in status, or to give dignity and honor. Literally, it can mean to physically enlarge something. So in Matthew uh, 23 5 it says they they enlarge the tassels the pharisees enlarge the tassels of their garment and it's the same word they they exalted the tassels of their garment they, they physically made them bigger so a, a synonym would be to magnify so paul's rejoicing because christ is magnified in him christ is exalted in him in his actions in his body christ is exalted so let's think about this term magnify. How would you define magnify? Someone give me a definition of magnify. How do you think about that? Enlarge. Okay, enlarge, good. Enhance, Enhance. all right. What are some real world examples of magnifying? How do we, what are some ways that you hear that word being used or some applications of magnification? Michael, I'm going to ask you. Magnifying glass. Yeah. Do you, do you, so you study viruses, viral, virology? Uh, not, not exactly, but... No, um, I got it totally wrong. Yeah, Have you ever used a magnifying glass, Michael? I'm sorry. <laughs> I can still, I can, well, I was thinking in magnifying glass, like, you know, I, I'm a stamp collector, so when I look at my stamps, it helps okay. me to look at the fine detail. Okay, so magnifying here is you're taking something that's small mm -hmm. and you're, you're making it bigger, right? So that's one way of magnifying something. What's another way of magnifying? Well, I used to do amateur astronomy and trying to see details from, to, uh, from distant objects. Yeah. Like it, uh, my telescope, if I point to Jupiter, you can see like the clouds on it. Yeah. Telescope. Yeah, so it's different, right? One's magnifying something small, making it so that you can, so that it's actually big. One is you're not magnifying something small. Jupiter's not small. Jupiter's massive, but you're bringing it closer. You're taking something that's massive and far away, and you're bringing it closer. So one is not what Paul's talking about, magnify something that's tiny and making it big. It's Think of it as taking something that's massive, but getting closer to it, making it so that it's... Clarifying exactly good, making it more known to others, so making when you it say big. that you're becoming smaller as you magnify the word of God or in your life, in your speech, you're magnifying him that he is everything that everybody sees and hears, not you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, a good implication to draw from it. When Christ is exalted in your body, then you are you're, you're smaller, right? Like John the Baptist, he must increase I must decrease he must it's not the same word but it's the same idea he must be exalted and I must be lower must be decreasing so that brought Paul joy the fact that Christ was exalted in his body the fact that Christ was seen as great that, that Christ was seen as lovely and pure and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy the fact that Christ was seen as that 
And Paul would say, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Right? Paul was very content to say, we preach Christ. I don't preach Paul. I don't, we don't even preach any of the apostles. We preach Christ. So Paul was joyful to know that Christ was exalted in him. And by implication, he was made very low. When people see Paul, they see Christ. Remember, he says, I have been crucified. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Paul's, that's his joy. That's what, that's what drives him. It's, it's the fact that Christ would be seen as great to the people who see me. So, coming back to our question, is that our joy? Is it our joy that Christ is exalted in our body? Or do we tend to want to exalt ourselves? You're either exalting Christ or you're exalting yourself. I know my temptation is to want to exalt myself. It's a battle. We have to fight that battle to have self be seen as great. That's know, our tendency. Sometimes, you know, when you, when you might do something like that, and then the Holy Spirit speaking to you, right? So it's like, wait a minute. No, I said that wrong, but that didn't come up right. Yeah. You might be filled with, with repentance or guilt. Like, no, forgive me, God, because this is all about you and not me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that was Paul's life. It was just everything just pointed to Christ. Just Christ is everything. I want people to see him. I want him to be proclaimed. I want him to be known. I want him to be loved. And, and we see that. I mean, we're looking at one portion of Philippians, but that's all through Philippians. I mean, we'll see it more and more as we go. All of chapter 3 is just Christ, Christ, Christ. Paul pointed his whole life to Christ. It brought him joy in the exaltation of Christ Jesus. So let's talk about practically how can we exalt Christ in our life? I'm sure there's a lot of ways. There's small things, big things, but what are just some things that you would, when you're looking at this, you say, okay, there, there's, here's something I can do to exalt Christ. To be thankful. Okay, be thankful. Thankful for what? For he, what, he, what he has done, what he continues to do. Good. Good gratitude to God for, for spiritual things. I mean, thankfulness for physical family, food, shelter is good, but I think you're saying being thankful to him for spiritual blessings he's mm -hmm. given us, salvation, good. Yeah, what else? How can we exalt Christ in our life? You can look back at um, what, when you say that, it makes me think about the whole season of COVID that we're in, um, for me personally, I kind of thought that I was making the decision of homeschooling my children, mm. but three months into homeschooling, we were kind of locked down with COVID, mm. and to be able to look back and see, even in our sinfulness, how we, as you were saying, exalt ourselves, we can look back and see, thank you, God, even though when I didn't realize it, I didn't understand, this was you, and to give him the praise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. So we can exalt Christ by attributing to Him through providence what He's done in our lives and not you know, our, our own accomplishments. Yeah, Cassidy, you had some. Well, it's similar. You know, we can exalt Him by giving Him the glory for, you know, uh, like turning away from sin. You know, mm -hmm. instead of saying, This isn't in my power, since Christ changed me. You know, that's yeah, good. What else? I, else can we I, I noticed when Paul Paul says to I know you were talking about magnifying, and I I went to Psalm thirty four, but in in there it says in, in verse two it says my soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble hear and be glad, and in Psalm uh, verse three oh magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. So when you when you brought up the magnify and exalting, I I I thought about. You know, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Like, um, so, and Paul mentions a lot in his writings to the, the boast is in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. just, so I think agreeing with everyone else is saying, you know, um, just acknowledging that in, um, to God also, if someone says something or something, and I know like the temptation is to be, 
be like, oh yeah, you know, but to really <coughs> say, well, that's the Lord, you know, that's the Lord's working in me, or like Philippians 1 6, right? So, yeah, that's great. That's thanks for sharing that from Psalms. Yeah, magnify the Lord Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. It's exactly what we're talking about. Right, Bill. Yeah, I, uh, that's a big thing for me is, uh, I can, I can look back very clearly and see the trials that I've gone through, put myself through my wretched way of life before I was saved. And uh, he brought me through that fire and um, I came out the other end seeking God only because I got humbled and he beat me down. And uh, I love him because now I can see how he worked in my life and got me here. Mm. And I exalt him big. I love him. I love him. I can see what he has done for me mm. through that personal experience. Yeah. And I exalt him highly for that. Yeah, that's great. That's my main thing. I, I can see it clear. Yeah. Always help me. That's great. Yeah, yeah Ben. Yeah, um, I thought of maybe just following Paul's example of making less of our circumstances and making much of God. Because mm. um, he doesn't talk about or complain about what he's going through at all. Um, he's just talking about Christ, talking about the church, encouraging them in any way that he can. And I think like a modern day example of that would be, you know, friends and family that we know that are believers that have maybe died of cancer or something mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. and we hear about them in the hospital talking to doctors and nurses about the gospel mm -hmm. and their faith and they're not complaining about the fact that they're on their deathbed or anything like that and that's such an, a powerful way to exalt Christ in our life is just not complaining about our circumstances but making much <coughs> about the good things in our life yeah. in, in Christ yeah. Yeah. That's great. Lane you had Bill and, and Ben just going after court tells is um is witnessing to other non-believers yeah. about these situations yeah. without the complaint, the grumbling and what he was talking about, what Bill was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That, I think that's what God really I think that's what God really wants us to do. Hey, take your trial and say, hey, when a non-believer comes up to you and say, why do, you, why do you trust God so much? Well, this is what he's done in my life. Yeah. This yep. is the trial I went through. That's exactly right. Proclaim him, right? To yeah. tell others Make sure that his, can exalt him. He's out front every second of yeah. every detail. Yeah, good. Yeah, those are all great ways we can exalt, exalt Christ. There's so many different things. That's that's what our life is about. Serving others is a way to exalt Christ. Um, how we work. We saw in Titus, we can adorn the doctrine of God through how we work, how we submit to our bosses. So there's so many ways. Those are great. You can exalt li uh, Christ in life, in death. Paul said, exalt him in prison, in plenty. All of life really provides an opportunity to exalt Christ. John Piper, I like his kind of mantra where he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's how we can exalt Christ. Be satisfied in him. Be satisfied in, in Christ himself, what he's done for us. The fact that he's our shepherd, he's near us. He cares for us. He intercedes for us. He's our king. Be satisfied in him. And the more we're satisfied in him, the more God is glorified in us. That's Piper's kind of life life quote, which I, I really like. Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I don't consider my life of any account. Again, another example of Paul just saying, I'm nothing, Christ is everything. So that's one way, and, and as we transition to the next verse here, that's another way that Paul exalts Christ. He, he makes Christ everything in his life. It's everything. Look at verse 21. Famous verse. We, we know it well. 
many sermons could be preached even on this verse, and many have. I would commend one to you, in fact, um, Joel Beakey. You guys probably remember that if you were there, a memorable sermon back about a year ago at Grace, just on this one verse, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so power-packed. But this is what Paul does. One of the ways he exalts Christ is, for him, Christ is everything. So to live is Christ. It's, it's life for Paul. So exalting Christ means Christ is everything to me. He's my life. I'm nothing apart from Christ. If, 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 if someone were to ask you to live is, what would be the answer? To live is... We know that should be the answer, right? <laughs> but if we really get down to it, what is it that sometimes takes a place? What is it that drives us? To live is family. To, to live is doing really well at work. To live is having a comfortable lifestyle. To live is having my kids around or having my parents, my family to live is having the respect of my spouse. To live is to have the love of my spouse. Some of those aren't bad things. A lot of them are good things. But if that's life for us, then we need to recalibrate. Paul says to live is Christ. Everything is Christ. Brian, so if mine was like to live, to have victory over sin, that then falls short. Mm. Well... What do you guys think? What would you say? What would any of us say? Is it, what if we say to live is to have victory over sin? Well, is that... Well, yeah. well, in Christ you have victory over sin. Amen. Yeah. yeah. But... Okay. No, go, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just, just going to elaborate that more. If, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ and repented of your sin... And then you live the rest of your life to exalt him and magnify him, then you have victory over sin. But if you are striving your whole life to never sin, that's you, that, that can't happen. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. Um, so that we are we're going to sin. But we have victory over it in Christ. And it could potentially be a dangerous road to go on because you sort of could confuse yourself into thinking, I have to do good in order to please God. Mm. And we do want to honor God, but we can only please God if we are in Christ, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We can say we want to do good yeah. to honor Christ. Mm -hmm. But we, we can't have to because yeah. we can't. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I think the trials uh, help us see that uh, we can do nothing apart from Him. Mm -hmm. That yeah. we can, because um, it's Him that is providing the growth, you know, for us. And so I, 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 um, uh, I would just say that, that like, um, whatever we, like what Paul said, if whatever, whatever I have has been given to me, you know, so what do I have that's been, that, what do I have that I, that I can say I, I, I've done, it's, it's been, it's all been given to me mm -hmm. in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember Christ says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Mm -hmm. Abide in me. So we have a vine out here on our wall, and I think about this every time I'm out there and I see it. There's, there's one stalk that goes in the ground, and from that, you can see the wall. Almost the whole wall is covered with a vine. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the, you're the branch. So it would be the branches that cover the whole wall. He says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Abide in me, because without me, you can do nothing. So if that one little stalk that goes in the ground is cut, what happens to everything that's on the wall? Dies. Right? So we have to stay in Christ. He is the source. And what comes from that is sanctification, fighting against sin, victory over sin. But it's a great point because sometimes, I think very commonly, we can 
he's shooting at the target and this, the bullseye is right in the middle and we go just a little bit to that side and we say, life is about overcoming sin. It's close, <laughs> but life is right there. It's Christ. Life is Christ for a believer. That's what Paul's saying. Life, everything is Christ. And when you have that right, then everything else turns out right. You will have victory over sin. And in Philippians 3, we're going to see that, that if you get Christ right, then all else, you'll see it as rubbish. Everything else in your life, even the pursuit after righteousness in a legalistic way, it's, it's all rubbish. It's, Paul's just like heaping on uh, um, superlative after superlative. It's all rubbish. It's, it's nothing. He says even, um, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So he's just, he's just so laser focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what cults will do. They'll pull you just a little bit away from the person of Jesus Christ. And then it's about something else. Maybe it's not about the, the God-man Jesus Christ. He's not fully um, human and he's not fully God. And so cults can say it's not about that real true Christ. It's about something else. But when we laser focus our life on Jesus Christ, the man God, man, then everything else will just fall right into place. He's, he's the vine, we're the branches, but we abide in him as a person, as, a, as God, then that's life. So, now, now you said something about, somebody said uh, about family, so the mm -hmm. same thing with family, so if Christ is the center of the bullseye, then family, I'll say, should be working out correctly too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Now, now, we can make Christ our life, we're still going to have sin. We still will have areas of our life that Christ is working on, that he's refining. Um, but we need to be sure that we're pointed and that our, our life is Christ. We see Jesus Christ really as the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. We can even sometimes think the gospel is forgiveness of sins. It is. But... Not to exclude forgiveness of sins, but even more precisely, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. He is what Christians are about. It's about Christ Jesus. So, so the implication, I'll, I'll come back, Bill. So the implication is the more we exalt Christ in our life, the more we come close to Christ, the more we are uh, living the life, that, 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 that will flesh out itself in our life in obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, Bill, go ahead. Well, we hear this stuff in the world, out there in the world, you know, about what is this thing called life and all this stuff. And um, so, what are we, just what we're talking about here, because I'm looking at this for the first time a different way, what you brought up, and thank you. Um, so, we're talking about life. Life is about, life is about seeking Christ. That's it. End of story. Life is Christ. To yes. me, seeking to live Christ. Christ. Right. It's hard. We have to make Jesus Christ the center of our life. What you said is, is that life is about seeking after Christ. That's what he says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus prays in John 17 very, you know, very much that there would be unity, that, they, that we would be one, that we would be one in Christ. And then that turns... To unity with each other. And that's that's the next point really where I'm going is that if Christ is our life, then it will manifest itself in us then turning that outward towards others. So we'll get there. Just one brief comment so we could keep going. But some might ask, why can't I have Christ and my family and work? And why can't I have all these things? Why can't my life be about multiple things? Jesus says, you cannot have two masters. Mm -hmm. You will love the one and hate the other. So we as sinners, our, our hearts are natural idol factories. Mm -hmm. We constantly make everything in our life an idol and make it more important than God or competing with God. And God says, I will have no enemies. I am God and I alone am God. So either you worship me or you don't. So that's why to live is Christ and Christ mm -hmm. alone. 
doesn't mean that we neglect our family and neglect our job because God says that we must do those things, but we do them out of an act of worship and obedience to him first. Yeah, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, right? It's, it's so, it's, I think this point is lost among Christians so often that what is the gospel? What is Christianity? What is the Christian life? It's Christ. Paul would say it's Christ. To live is Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That's it. I mean, more comes from that, but yes. simply it's, it's Jesus. It's, it's not a, not a system of rules. It's not things we do, don't know. Christianity is Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul can say, to die is gain. Why is to die gain? Well, because he's going to be with Christ. Right? I can live, it's Christ. If I die, I'm going to be with Christ. It's better to depart and be with him. That's far better. So it's anywhere you go for Paul, it's Christ to live, Christ to die. It's, it's gain because that's where Jesus is. Like I said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing <clears throat> Christ Jesus my Lord. Michael Reeves wrote a book. We're going through it in our staff. Julie and I work together, and we, we have staff meetings every Friday. We're reading through this book. It's called Rejoicing in Christ. We just started. It's great. Um, there's a, a couple quotes out of here that I found really helpful. Reeves says, Life is found in Jesus Christ, the author and source of it. And if we know him rightly, we will find nothing so desirable, so delightful as him. Isn't that good? There's another uh, quote by Robert Murray McShane. who's a Scottish preacher. And he was writing to a friend, and this is the advice he gave his friend. He says, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. You heard that? He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. It's good, isn't it? For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Jesus is the gospel. Paul says to live is Christ. Well, he also says to die is gain. To die is gain. There's so much here, right? This is just so loaded with meaning, but um, for the sake of time, we'll start to just move through it. To die is gain. It's gain not because of heaven, not because we get new bodies, not because we get to see our relatives. Not because we have harps and we're going to play them. Not because of the pearly gates. Not because of that. Gain, death is not gain because of that. Death is gain. He says it. Verse 23. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. There it is. Death is gain because it means you depart and you're with Christ. Is that what we see as the gain in our death? We think about heaven, we think about the reward, and that's, that's not wrong. We think about the things that will be there, the new heaven and the new earth, but do we think about just the fact that Christ is there and we get to depart and be with him? That's heaven. That's heaven. To depart and be with him. To die is gain, not because of what we get, but because of whom we'll be with. We'll be with Christ. Revelation 21, 23, speaking at the very end, what it's going to look like. I heard a loud voice. Oh, sorry, that's wrong verse. 23. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Christ is the light of heaven. I won't. Well, I'm going to read it. I'm just going to skip it, but we can't skip it. Revelation 5, you can go ahead and turn there. We know it well, but this is why to die is gain. Revelation 5, 
verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, this is to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Amen. That's why to die is gain. You will, we will be there. We will be with Christ. We will be worshipping. We will be throwing down our crowns around the sea. We'll be saying, worthy are you. Worthy are you of riches, power, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. That's why to die is gain. Can we say that? Can we say that we view dying as gain because it means we'll be with Christ? funny story that I'm embarrassed one of my kids who's here, but I won't say which one it's about, I don't even remember, but we were tucking in our kids one night a couple years ago, and it was on Christmas Eve, and somehow we were talking about Jesus coming back, and I'm not sure if it was you or Taylor, but one of you said, one of them said, I want Jesus to come back, but after tomorrow, because I want to open my presents. <laughs> I don't want Jesus to come back until we've opened our presents. And it was funny because it came from a child, but I, I, it stuck with me because I think sometimes we have that mentality. We don't want Jesus quite yet because we have too much here on earth. We have presents, we have things, we kind of enjoy this and we want, yeah, I'm ready, but to die is gain, friends, right? We need to be reminded of that. To die is gain. This world has nothing for us. To die is gain. Mar. I have a question. Yes. So your kids are gonna be still be your kids in heaven? Oh goodness. <laughs> Will our kids be our kids in heaven? So I it's it's a lot to get into. I think that relationships are all gonna be different in heaven. My kids are gonna be my brothers and sisters, Lord willing. Though we'll we'll all be, I think, one in terms of the relationships, that's, that's my thought. We're going to be brothers and sisters, and so we'll be all worshiping the same uh, Christ, but as all his, his children, so I'm not sure that's my, my thought. I haven't thought too much about that, but it's <laughs> my initial thought. But dying is gain. It's gain because of Christ. Christ will be there. Well, Paul had a, he, he goes on, he, he takes joy in the exaltation of Christ in his body. But that turns into service to others. So he has a joy in serving or a joy in manifestation of Christ. And, and let's look at it. We'll, we'll do it briefly. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, and Paul starts this, this comparison, living or dying. He starts the theme up in verse 20. Whether by life or by death, Christ is going to be exalted. So there, you have life on one side and death on the other. Paul's going to spend some, some verses here talking about life versus death. If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart to be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for whom? 
to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So there's two sides. And I just kind of list it out here to make it easy. So on one side is life. What does he say about life? He says, to live is Christ. So life is Christ. Christ can be exalted in my life. Christ be exalted in death. But in life, there are good things about it for you, Philippians. There are good things that can come about for your sake. That's life. Life means fruitful labor because it's service to them. Life, Paul's life is more necessary for the Philippians. It's more necessary for them. It will mean progress and joy in the faith for the Philippians. He's uncertain whether he's going to choose it. He doesn't have the choice of whether he's going to live or die, but he means to, to prefer. I don't know which I would prefer. I don't know which I would choose. To, to live or to die. To die is gain. To live means all these benefits for you. Well, what's death? Life is Christ. Death is gain. Christ can be exalted in life or in death. So that's kind of on both sides of the, of the T-sheet. You got life. Christ is exalted in life. Christ is exalted in death. What's, what's death? There are good things about it for Paul. It's gain. It's better, he says. It's far better. He's uncertain whether he's going to choose it. It's, it's desired because it will mean departing and being with Christ. So he's faced with two possibilities of what's going to happen to him. He's either going to live or he's going to die. And he's saying, if I die... That's only positive for me. No, no bad things come about for me dying. If I live, it's positive for you. I can minister to you. I can be about your joy in the faith. There's fruitful labor. There's spiritual fruit. I can help you. So he says, I, it's more necessary for me to live. So the manifestation, the serving that is here is that Paul says, I really want to be serving you, Philippians. I want to make it my, my joy to see you progress in the faith. That's what Paul's heart is. It's love for Christ that turns into love for the church. To live is Christ, to die is gain, but I want to live because I want to serve you, Philippians. So it's a selflessness that he wants to serve them. He wants them to progress. He wants them to have joy he wants him to be proud and confident in him, not because of who he is, but because of Christ. So the love, the joy, and, and exaltation of Christ turns to a joy and manifestation of Christ to them. He wants to be Christ to them. He wants to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he wants to be that servant to the Philippian church. So the joy and proclamation we looked at last week, joy and exaltation, joy in the manifestation of Christ. The, the, the closer we get to Christ, the more we will be like him. That means we turn into servants of other people, right? Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve. So how can we manifest Christ to others? How can we be the aroma of Christ to those around us? Well, it starts with knowing him. Right? It starts with drawing near to him, communing with him, knowing him more as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Shepherd. When we do that, we will then turn outward to serve others. Do you have a question there? We sang that song um, earlier, Christ our hope in life and death, because it fits so well with this theme. Christ is our hope. Christ is gain in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What's our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Until the grave, what shall we sing? Christ he lives, Christ he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is so impactful to see the life of Paul when he shows us that, that true life is Christ, that to live is Christ. Everything comes back to, for a Christian, everything comes back to Christ. 
Lord Jesus, you are everything to us. And Lord, we don't love you as we should. We confess that. We have sin in our lives that blinds us to your glory and to the devotion that you are owed. We don't trust you as we should. Lord, we don't seek you as we should. One day we will. One day we will perfectly worship you and seek you and love you. But until then, Lord, we pray that your spirit will sanctify us and bring about more and more of a desire to know you and to love you. We pray that like Paul, we'd be able to say that we count all things loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Pray that that would be true of us more and more to an increasing degree for your glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.